God, let all the nations praise you. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and the confusion stops here. And I am excited. We got a good show lined up for you. Today's Catholic Kryptonite will answer the question, is the Catholic Church anti-science? Does the Church have a problem with science? Also, we're going to look at some false ideas that many Catholics have about the Church today in our our new segment, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? Uh, we're also going to take a look at a crucial Catholic belief that you personally have professed countless times in public, but have probably never really thought uh, that much about. But first, it is the month of May, and May is traditionally dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. However, Many of the usual May devotions to Mary, like May crownings, Marian possessions, votive masses, public recitation of the rosary, and so on, uh, well, they're not available to us because of the restrictions due to COVID-19. So to start the program today, I wanted to offer some no-nonsense ways that you can use to honor Our Lady while you shelter in place. So number one is to pray five decades of the rosary every day. Five decades, that's one set of mysteries, right? The, the joyful mysteries, sorrowful mysteries, etc. Five decades. And I, I would hope that you're already praying a day's, daily rosary, but if not, you know, there's no time like the month of May to get started. And especially this May, when so many people are stuck at home. And the most holy rosary is good for what ails you at any time. But I think especially so in these days when uh, so many of us are tempted to waste precious time watching, you know, stupid programs on TV, unwholesome programs, tempted to even lose the state of grace by looking at impure images on the computer, the smartphone. You know, Our Lady's Rosary is a powerful, powerful weapon in the spiritual battle and a great consolation for those who are suffering, and, and especially for those of us who are suffering from not being able to go to Mass or not being able to go to confession. Um, and I think of those, uh, like in my RCIA class, I spent the last year uh, preparing to be received into the church through baptism who have not been able to receive the sacrament. You know, I started praying a daily rosary back when I was in RCA, IA, but even before I was baptized. And I can tell you Our Lady's intercession has been invaluable to me. And well, by the way, a Virgin Most Powerful Radio offers a daily rosary, which is prayed by yours truly and Jesse Romero and Terry Barber. And that's we broadcast it every day on our webcast uh, slash podcast. Or you can pray with us anytime on demand, you know, on our YouTube channel, or you can go to the VMPR smartphone app. Let's see. Also, since it's Easter time, speaking of Marian prayers, you can join Catholics around the world to pray the, uh, the Regina Chaley prayer at noontime, or if you prefer, three times a day at 6 uh, a.m., 12 p.m., and then 6 p.m. in place of the Angelus, which we pray for the rest of the year. Or, you know, you can go to your prayer book, or you can look online, and you'll find a whole whole host of Marian prayers, the Memorare, the Subtuum Presidium, the Ave Maria Stellis, the, the Salve Regina, all the various prayers to Our Lady under her many titles, like Our Lady of Lourdes, or Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Grace, and so on. You can probably pray a different Marian prayer every single day in the month of May, if you have a mind to. So prayer to Mary, that's number one. Number two, uh, you can read the inspired words about Mary in the Holy Bible. You know, you'll find the, the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity, the Presentation of Jesus, the Prophecies of Simeon and Anna, uh, Mary and Joseph 
Joseph losing the child Jesus for three days and then finding him in the temple. All of that's right in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And there's also many good books about Mary and books about the Holy Rosary, like uh, Venerable Mary of Agreda's Mystical City of God. Uh, my wife really loved that. She read that. She could only read like a page at a time because it was so so deep, you know, so dense. And there's actually a four-volume set. She she has, there's a thick one-volume version of it also that is the one that she used. But that's, I mean, that, that's just one among many great books about Our Lady. St. Louis de Montfort wrote The Secret of Mary, which is a shorter little book, or The Secret of the Rosary. Good spiritual reading is always important, but I think especially reading about Mary during this special month, during the month of May. Number three, you can put up an image of Mary. Now, every Catholic home should display an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. But for the month of May, you know, you might think about, say, you take that picture of Mary that's hanging on your bedroom wall, and, or, or the statue of Mary that's on a bookshelf, or you can print a picture of Mary off the internet and put it someplace conspicuous, you know, um, like me there in the living room next to the television set, maybe, you know, get some flowers and candles, nice lace tablecloth, just something special in honor of Our Lady. Or, you know, you can go the more traditional route. Um, you, you can adorn with flowers or candles or whatever, some image you already have on display. For example, the uh, statues of Our Lady, especially outdoors, you can make a crown of flowers to, to put on her head and, and just have your own private May crowning, which is something that we used to do with the kids when they were little. You know, we would we have a statue about five feet high, Our Lady of Grace, in a little grotto by the front door. And we would go out there and say our prayers and sing a little Marian hymn. And, and the children would put the wreath of flowers on Mary's head. It's a beautiful tradition and something that you can do, you know, to honor the Blessed Virgin Mary here during the month of May. Number four. Okay, this is related. You could share your favorite image of Mary via social media, right? Put up on Facebook or Instagram. There are more images of the Blessed Virgin Mary of, of every kind, just statues, paintings, mosaics, whatever, more images of Mary than any other woman who ever walked the earth. So number one, it may be hard to pick a favorite. Uh, personally, I've always loved the painting called The Song of the Angels, which was painted by the 19th century uh, painter William Adolf Bugaro. And I actually, I shared that picture yesterday on the VMPR Facebook page. And I encouraged the people that follow the page to reply with their own favorite pictures of Mary. And I invite you to do the same. You know, if you don't follow us on Facebook, I suggest that you make a visit over to facebook.com and find the Virgin Most Powerful Radio Facebook page and click the follow us and check it out. A lot of people responded. There's a lot of beautiful um, pictures of Mary that people put up. And, uh, and it's a nice thing. You know, especially for this month of May, there was a couple of images of Mary that I had never seen before. And that's kind of the point, because there are so many images of Mary um, that there are so many to to share. And this is the perfect time to do it. Made a, you know, bright spot in my day. Uh, let's see. And so we're sharing seven tips, by the way, for those of you just joining us. <clears throat> we're sharing seven ways to honor the Blessed Virgin Mary during the month of May and under the restrictions uh, due to the COVID-19 virus. Okay, number five on the list is you can send someone a Marian gift, right? You can't visit people anymore, but you, we can still send stuff through the mail or UPS or whatever. Just a little something, a rosary, 
a miraculous medal, you know, a scapular, a little little book about Mary, maybe just a holy card. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. Just something to let your friends or family know that you're thinking about them and that you're praying for them and that Mary is too. You know, you could uh, you can offer somebody a spiritual bouquet just by letting them know, via telephone or, or, you know, however, just let them know that you're adding their intentions to your daily rosary. Um, for that matter, you could send an actual bouquet. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. There's lots of flowers that are associated with Our Lady. Uh, roses uh, and lilies come to mind immediately, but there's, what else? There's irises and, and uh, periwinkle. There's even a flower called the Lady Slipper. Well, originally it was called Our Lady's Slipper, and it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful flower. But it's called the Lady Slipper from the legend that those flowers first sprung up when Our Lady passed by the spring where, where her feet had touched the ground, right? And so they're, they're uh, named for Our Blessed Lady's Slippers. The, the point is, again, just to let people know you're praying for them, that Mary's praying for them, and you can make somebody's day and at the same time practice uh, the spiritual works of mercy at the same time, which, by the way, is number six on the list to practice the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, uh, at least as well as you can uh, in the current circumstances. I mean, some of the corporal works especially would be kind of difficult to accomplish uh, with the social distancing and all that. But you can certainly always pray. You can pray for the living and for the dead. You can forgive injuries. You can bear wrongs patiently. You can comfort the sorrowful, counsel the doubtful. Uh, and I would add particularly the spiritual work of mercy, which is to instruct the ignorant. And when I say instruct the ignorant, especially in regard to those who don't know our Lord Jesus Christ or the church he founded. You know, during a time of confusion like this, when people are looking for answers, especially this month that's dedicated to Mary, who's mother of the church, we should look for ways where we can share our faith. And in other words, that's number seven, is evangelize. You know, something like 20 years, almost 20 years ago, back in 2002, St. John Paul II said, and I quote, the internet can offer magnificent opportunities for evangelization if used with competence and a clear awareness of its strengths and weaknesses. Especially, he said, in an unsupportive culture, Christian living calls for continuing instruction and catechesis, and this is perhaps the area in which the Internet can provide excellent help. He said, by providing information and stirring interest, it makes possible an initial encounter with a Christian message, especially among the young who increasingly turn to the world of cyberspace as a window on the world. Now, he goes on to say that electronically mediated relationships can't take the place of direct human contact you know, which is re required for genuine evangelization because evangelization depends on personal witness of the one who is sent to evangelize. But he also said that while the internet can't replace that profound experience of God, which only the, the liturgical and sacramental life of the church can offer, in which we are currently denied, he said it can certainly provide a unique supplement and support in both preparing for the encounter with Christ and sustaining believers in their journey of faith. And that's us. What better time than now when we're deprived of that personal contact to use the internet for something more profound than arguing politics or the pursuit of pleasure. John Paul said, I dare to summon the whole church to put out into the deep of the net, not put your net under the deep, put out in the deep of the net to engage the gospel culture. What more pleasing thing we can do for the heart of the
Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. Male and female he created them. According to Pope St. John XXIII, it is not true that some human beings are by nature superior and others inferior. All human beings are equal in their natural dignity. May God help us to look upon everyone as a person created in His image and likeness and treat everyone the same without favoritism or prejudice. We got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest. I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, you that's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people, you know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta, we have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the divine mercy chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old five kids and I thank you guys so everybody else man get on fire fight for the truth man I know what I'm telling you guys there's I no love it out there This is Terry Barber I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio Here's an easy way to do it if you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to Catholic, the home of Keep It Simple Catholicism here on Virgin Power, Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and I want to read you something from the teaching of the church. Listen. Often, men, deceived by the evil one, have become vain in their reasonings and have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, serving the creature rather than the creator. By the proclamation of the gospel, the church gives men the dispositions necessary for baptism, snatches them from the slavery of error and of idols, and incorporates them into Christ. That's some pretty traditional Catholic language, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty exclusive, certainly not very ecumenical. I mean, taking the devil seriously, believing that men should trust the revelation of God over and above worldly wisdom to the point of calling it not just error, but idolatry. Now, that sounds like something... You know, from Nicaea or one of the other early councils. Now, there are some folks today who might say, well, thank goodness that way of thinking went out with Vatican II. Except it didn't. Because what I just read was a quote from Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church from the Second Vatican Council. Now, if that comes as a surprise to you, it's probably because the real Vatican II has been, has been replaced as 
has been, you know, superseded, overtaken in the minds of many Catholics by the so-called spirit of Vatican II, which typically has little or nothing to do with the Council's actual teachings. And for decades now, liberal Catholics, for lack of a better term, have been claiming that Vatican II changed the official teaching of the Catholic Church and on a whole host of important issues. Now, that's why I'm introducing this segment uh, on No Nonsense Catholic called Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? Because I believe that anyone who takes the time to give the Vatican II documents a fair reading will see that they are far from the break with tradition that they're portrayed to be by uh, the dissenters in the church, whether they're, you know, radical progressives on the one hand or radical traditionalists on the other. You know, the next time some dissenting Catholic tells you, oh, well, that went out with Vatican II, then here's a few passages uh, from the Council I want you to keep in mind. Okay, number one, the Council of Trent dogmatically taught that the Catholic Church is the one true Church of Christ, period. Now, the liberal Catholic says, well, that went out with Vatican II. It doesn't matter what church you belong to because we're all sisters and brother. But what does Vatican II really say? See, according to the Declaration on Religious Freedom, that's Dignitatis Humanae, paragraph one says, we believe that this one true religion subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church, to which the Lord Jesus committed the duty of spreading it abroad among all men. Catholic Church is the true church, and the Catholic Church is responsible for spreading the true religion. Right? Now, in context, what this is saying is that while there are many elements of the true religion that exist outside the church, you know, for example, valid baptism, prayer, the Holy Bible, that, that first of all, these things come from the church, belong to her, properly speaking, but also that the substance of the true religion, that which makes the one true church of Christ to be the one true church of Christ, is found in the Catholic church alone. That's why they say substance sists in, is of the substance of. And those words, now that may be an updated formulation, and hopefully it provides a useful distinction between elements and substance, so that people aren't fooled into thinking that all uh, Christian churches are the same. The point is, you know, whether it's a new formulation or not, the teaching of the Catholic Church is still the same. Right? Okay, number two, uh, Catholic tradition tells us that the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. Now, the liberal Catholic, again, he's going to say, well, that's that's anti-ecumenical. That stance, that's triumphalistic. That went out with Vatican II. But what does the council really say? Will the real Vatican II please stand up? Lumen Gentium 14, quote, basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition, this council teaches that the church, now sojourning on the earth as an exile, is necessary for salvation. Christ, present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church. For men enter the church through baptism as through a door. Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by by Christ would refuse to enter or remain in it could not be saved. Unquote. 
Okay. Now, you will notice that this leaves room for such a thing as invincible ignorance, which the church has always taught. That is, that people who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel, uh, who, don't, who don't know the necessity of the church, um, you know, that God will provide them with the grace necessary for salvation. But what it's saying is that those who do know, that those, or even those who should know that the Catholic Church is, was made necessary by, by Christ, and would still refuse to enter the church or refuse to remain in the church, cannot be saved. Now, that's the church's traditional understanding of extra ecclesia nullis Outside the church, there's no salvation. And believe it or not, it is the official teaching of Vatican II. All right, number three, something that um, I think is important, especially in our day, and for reasons that I will, uh, I don't have to make explicit, I, I suspect. And that is, of course, our tradition tells us that Catholics need to be obedient to the local bishop and especially to the Pope. <clears throat> even when the Pope's not speaking ex cathedra, which uh, that is to say, even when he's not making an infallible pronouncement, you still owe obedience to the Pope. And the liberal Catholic says, well, that went out with Vatican too. We no longer have to listen to the Pope and the bishops because we lay people have the census fidelium right, which they understand to be like some, like, like a popular vote, okay? And, and the, the liberal understanding of the, of the sense of the faith, the census fidelium, the sense of the faithful, would be, um, uh, for example, because the majority accepts it, um, the majority of, of, of people who call themselves Catholics practice contraception, and, and that must be okay, because if the majority accepts it, then that's the census fidelium number no matter what the bishops say. Okay, and I have, I have actually heard that example used in a Catholic context. But is that what the sense of fidelium really is? Okay, will the real Vatican II please stand up? Lumen Gentium 25 says, quote, bishops teaching in communion with the Roman pontiff, okay, so not by themselves, but, you know, not just any bishop, but bishops who are in union with the full communion with the church, teaching in communion with the Roman pontiff are to be respected by all as witnesses to divine and Catholic truth. In matters of faith and morals, the bishops speak in the name of Christ, and the faithful are to accept their teaching and adhere to it with a religious assent. Unquote. What, is, what does that mean? What's religious assent? Uh, also known as religious obedience. Well, first off, it's different from the obedience of faith. That's the kind of obedience that, that we owe to non-negotiable teachings of the faith, like 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 the, the three persons in the, in the Holy Trinity, okay? That you have, to, you have to believe that with supernatural faith in order to be saved. But religious assent or religious obedience is, um, it means that you need to respect and obey your bishop and submit your intellect and will to his rightful authority, even if you happen to disagree with him. Now, with regard to the Pope, Lumen Gentium says, quote, this religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. That is, it must be shown in such a way that his supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence. Okay, so you got to obey the Pope, you got to obey the bishops. Okay, the, the only um, exception is 
um, sin, right? And then you have to say, I, I must obey God rather than men. But we don't know everything that they know. We're, God didn't ordain me a bishop, so I still owe religious assent to the teaching of my bishop. Now, what about that census fidelium? What about the sense of the faithful? See, this is not some gift that's possessed by the laity in order to oppose the bishops, right? Like, like some kind of, like we can override with a two-thirds majority, you know, like politics. No, the census fidelium always includes and must include the Pope and the bishops too. Lumen Gentium says, listen, the entire body of the faithful anointed as they are by the Holy One, cannot err in matters of belief. So the whole church altogether can't, you know, is, is the, the, the belief of the entire church is itself infallible. And it says they, meaning the entire body of the faithful, manifest this special property by mean of the whole people's supernatural discernment in matters of faith when, quote, from the bishops on down to the last of the lay faithful, they show universal agreement in matters of faith and morals. See, if you're, it can't be the census fidelium if you disagree with the Pope and the bishops. This discernment in matters of faith is aroused and sustained by the spirit of truth. It is exercised under the guidance of the sacred teaching authority in faithful and respectful obedience to which the people of God accepts that which is not just the word of men, but truly the word of God. When people say, oh, all Catholics are contraception, so that's okay because that's the census fidelium, that's nonsense. In fact, I would go so far as to say that anytime you hear someone say that went out with Vatican II, you can remember that while we can come to a deeper understanding of the truths of the faith, the teaching of the church cannot change. It can never be understood in a way that contradicts the original teaching. And that's no nonsense. And that's why we have this, this uh, new segment. We'll be returning to this, I think, uh, from time to time. It's important, especially when, you know, in times of confusion, that people really understand what it is the church is saying in our own day. All right. Hey, by the way, uh, I hope you guys are enjoying this. I want to invite you to visit. I've got, I put up a new website. There's not a whole lot on it now, but there's some videos and some, uh, you know, I put up some memes and, and uh, I'm posting some articles. And it's nonsensecatholic.com, right? So please visit nonsensecatholic.com. And also be sure to visit our, our uh, VMPR Facebook page, download the app and so forth, because we've got a bunch of new stuff that's coming up that we're all pretty excited about here. There's a new show coming up with Jesse Romero and some of the guys from Liber Cristo, which they're calling the Liber Cristo War College Situation Room. So it's this, you know, the... Father Ripiger and the men at Liber Cristo are helping to form priests and lay people regarding uh, spiritual warfare and exorcism. So we're going to have a special show for that. Also, I got a new show coming up with Father Chris Aylar, one of the great uh, Divine Mercy priests, the, the Marians of the Immaculate Conception, called Understanding Divine Mercy. And that's going to debut on the 15th of this month. So every Friday at 12, we're going to have Understanding Divine Mercy. Hey, when we come back, is the church anti-science? Well, we'll find out the answer when No Nonsense Catholic returns here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need covenant eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code VMPR Live Porn Free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, the confusion stops here. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You know, I, I've been apologist now for over 20 years, and I'm still encountering fundamentalist Christians who repeat the old myth that the Catholic Church, the Church of Rome, forbids Catholics to read the Bible. And for years, for decades, I have answered that objection in this way. I say, well, if the Catholic Church discourages Bible reading, it will certainly come as a shock to the thousands of Catholic priests and millions of Catholic lay people who read the Bible every single day. Right? I mean, it's like, obviously, if the Church discourages Bible reading, what are we doing reading the Bible? You know, and I got to thinking that that might be a good approach to the claim of our fundamentalists, not fundamentalist Christians, but fundamentalist atheists, who say, oh, the Church is the enemy of science. And so you could respond this way. Well, if the Catholic Church is anti-science, it will certainly come as a shock to the members of the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences or the astronomers at the Vatican Observatory or, you know, the, the, the faculty of the physics department at Notre Dame, for example. And like our fundamentalist Christian friends, they, uh, you know, talking about the Bible, they might respond that, well, maybe the church is okay with science now. 
but that's not how it used to be. But the fact is that, that this is this proceeds precisely from bigotry. It is it is an old bigotry, and it's often, you know, debunked that the, the backward and superstitious Catholic Church was the enemy of reason. That that modern science only emerged after a long struggle against the brutal persecution of the church. And I'm going to tell you right now, friend, that is grade A, grade A, 100% pure nonsense. You know, St. Augustine argued that our ability to reason and engage in empirical investigation is a gift from God. St. Thomas Aquinas said that there's only one truth. And so it can be approached by the paths of both faith and science precisely because there is only one truth. You know, the, the modern physical sciences emerged precisely in the context of a Catholic worldview because we take for granted the existence of God. And consequently, we take for granted the intelligibility of the universe. You go all the way back, read the first chapter of Romans. You know, St. Paul was making this argument, uh, you know, within the, the, the first generation of Christians. And this, by the way, is what gave birth to what we call the scientific method. And that's why in a medieval university, you had to study astronomy before you could study theology, because theology is the queen of the sciences. Now, I, I obviously, I've had this conversation more than once, and the, and the next objection is about evolution. Well, the church denies evolution, and that's, that's all proven. So, But listen to what St. John Paul II said. John Paul II held two PhDs, by the way, so he's not exactly an anti-intellectual. And he said, and I quote, the theory of evolution is only a probability, not a scientific certainty. Super important distinction there, by the way. And he says, though, the doctrine of faith, however, invariably affirms that a human's spiritual soul is created directly by God. According to the hypothesis mentioned, now he's talking about Darwinian evolution, it is possible that the human body, following the order impressed by the creator on the energies of life, could have been gradually prepared in the forms of antecedent living beings, but the human soul, on which man's humanity definitely depends, cannot emerge from matter because it is of a spiritual nature. As the old saying goes, you can't give what you don't have, right? So what is he saying? He's saying God, God could have fashioned the universe, God could have fashioned even the human body using this evolutionary process, but he directly creates the human soul. Right? The first man was the first man because God made him so. And the point is that God must be acknowledged as creator. And there's a whole, I mean, at some point we'll do an entire show on, on creation and on evolution and on the fact that you, you really can't have a universe unless you have uh, somebody who can make the universe. Uh, but the point of, uh, that uh, establishing this basic premise is that the church encourages scientific and scholarly investigation so that we can learn more more and more about the way the universe arrived at its present state. But this much we do know. Any uh, legitimate, authentic scientific answer will not involve any contradiction between divine revelation and scientific facts because God is the author of all truth. Now, before we leave the, the theory of evolution, and, you know, I mean, uh, it's probably a whole show, but you might be surprised to learn that the, a theory of evolution existed before Charles Darwin. 
The, the French botanist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck developed the first cohesive theory of evolution. And his theory included a theory of inheritance of acquired characteristics, transmutation of species, the genealogical tree, all those things that we kind of associate with evolution. And, uh, and I should have mentioned that he was also the first scientist to use the term biology in its modern sense. Now, Lamarck died in 1829. That's 30 years before Darwin published On the Origin of the Species. And furthermore, to, to the point, Lamarck was a Catholic. In fact, he was an ordained deacon. And he saw no contradiction between creation and the theory of evolution, or between science and Catholicism. See, I can remember asking an atheist guy, why, why don't you believe in God? And he, his answer was, uh, because science? Like, have you ever heard of the Big Bang Theory? And I had the distinct pleasure of telling him that the Big Bang Theory was proposed by Monsignor Georges Lamotte, who was an astronomer, a professor of physics, and a Catholic priest. So, you know, most people don't know that. And for that matter, most people don't know the first thing about the Big Bang Theory either. See, what I can tell you is that Father Lamotte proposed that the universe expanded from an initial point, what he called the primeval atom. And he described his theory, I'm quoting now, as the cosmic egg exploding at the moment of creation. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, so it became better known as the Big Bang Theory. The point is, like Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, Monsignor Lamotte saw no, saw no contradiction between creation and science because he knew who made the Big Bang go bang. And you might be interested to know that Monsignor Lamotte was a colleague of Albert Einstein and that he was amongst the first uh, physicists to apply um, the, the, the general theory of relativity to cosmology. Now, uh, they did, back in 1933, Einstein and Lamont did a series of seminars together in California to promote um, the Big Bang Theory on Lamont's part and the theory of relativity on Einstein's part. And allegedly, after Lamont described the Big Bang Theory, Einstein led a standing ovation and said, this is, this is the most beautiful and satisfactory explanation of creation to which I've ever listened. Now, whether or not that's apocryphal, obviously, Einstein knew who made the Big Bang go bang, too. So the fact is that Catholics, like Father Lamotte, like, like Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, have always been in the forefront of serious scientific research. Go all the way back to the Middle Ages and, and you know, Copernicus, right, who is the, the, the medieval proponent of heliocentrism, the idea that, that the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa. It actually became known as the Copernican theory. And so he's centuries before a forerunner of Galileo and just happened to be a Catholic priest. Gregor Mendel, who was the father of genetics, was a Catholic monk. And there's no shortage of, of Catholic scientists amongst the laity. Um, there's a great story. Once upon a time in France, there was an old man riding on a train praying his rosary. And a young fellow sat down next to him and he said that that's that devotion of yours, that superstition. You're obviously ignorant of modern science because modern science shows us there is no God. And, and you know, he, and he gave him his big lecture. He even asked for the the old man's card, he wanted his address so he could send him some literature so he could get over his superstition. And the old man gave him his card, and the name on the card was Louis Pasteur. And you can imagine how embarrassed this young fellow was when he saw that name. I mean, Louis Pasteur, the famous microbiologist who invented, you know, pasteurization, the process that bears his name. It's one of the biggest breakthroughs ever in the prevention of disease. But Pasteur was also a fervent Catholic. You know what he told his fellow Catholic scientists? 
this. He said, or his students, he says, a little science takes you away from God, but a lot of science takes you back to him. Question your priorities often. Make sure God always comes first. He said, posterity will one day laugh at the sublime foolishness of modern materialistic philosophy. The more I study nature, he said, the more I stand amazed at the work of the creator. I always pray while I am engaged in my work in the laboratory. That's something. I'm, I might mention uh, St. Giuseppe Muscati was one of the first uh, physicians to use insulin in the treatment of diabetes. You know, he said, On, only one science is unshakable and unshaken, the one revealed by God. In all your works, look to heaven, to the eternity of life and the soul, and your activity will be inspired for the good. You know, it makes me think a couple of weeks ago, Governor Cuomo there in New York said that, uh, you know, all all the headway they're making against the coronavirus is that's doctors and nurses. He said, God didn't do that. And of course, he got rightly lambasted for it. I think one of my favorite things is all the pictures that people posted of doctors and nurses taking a moment in the midst of all this, you know, COVID craziness to pray together. You know, what does he think was getting them through, um, you know, th- th- dealing with this pandemic? Uh, let's see. How about Dr. Jerome Lejeune, who discovered trisomy 21? That's the genetic defect that causes Down syndromes. And he, he labored tirelessly to find a cure, and he was absolutely appalled uh, by the fact that uh, people used his discovery in prenatal testing for abortion. You know, he said, the enemies of life know that to destroy Christian civilization, they must first destroy the family at its weakest point, the child. And among the weakest, they must choose the least protected of all, the child who has never been seen, who has not seen the light of day, who cannot even cry out in distress. His pro-life stance probably cost him the Nobel Prize. But on the other hand, St. John Paul II appointed him the first president of the Pontifical Academy for Life. And the cause for his canonization is open in Rome. Now, let me ask you, would you rather be a a Nobel laureate or a saint? Point is, none of these guys had any difficulty reconciling their faith with advanced scientific research. And yet, the, the myth that the church is the enemy of science still persists, largely because of misinformation about another fervent Catholic from years ago whose name was Galileo. And we're going to talk about Galileo a little bit and more when we come back uh, after these messages. So stay with us. No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. In Luke 7, Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her, because she has been shown great love. According to St. John of the Cross, Christians should always remember that the value of their good works is not based on number and excellence. Their value is based on the love for God that prompts them to do the works. May we always be motivated by true love for God, and not worry so much about what we do, but why we do it. Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're breaking down some pretty complex issues into bite-sized chunks here, your home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and we're talking about the the phony charge that the church is anti-science. And the one big uh, example that the enemies of the church always bring up is Galileo. And one of the things that I mentioned uh, years ago uh, in response to Dan Brown's nonsense in the book uh, Angels and Demons, I said that uh, if the church had this centuries-long campaign against science, how come Galileo is the only example anybody can ever bring up? That's the only name that ever comes to mind. And they will say, well, Galileo, he was branded a heretic. He was persecuted at the church. Some people think he was burned at the stake. Did those things happen? Well, in a word, no. Galileo wasn't accused of heresy. The Copernican theory was already being taught in Catholic universities. How do you think Galileo learned about it? (laughs) What he was found guilty of was breaking the law for presenting his uh, theories as though they were established and indisputable facts. It's a good law, by the way. Can you imagine the kind of havoc you could cause if you started uh, passing laws based on bad science? (laughs) I think you probably can. And by the way, in his defense, Galileo said he didn't teach that his theory was a fact. But the court found otherwise, and he was put under house arrest. He wasn't tortured. He wasn't burned at the stake. House arrest. He remained a faithful Catholic until the day he died. He continued his scientific research throughout his life, and his his, uh, own daughter became a nun. So he lived and died a faithful Catholic. Interestingly, I think it was the Protestants with uh, their Sola Scriptura that called Galileo a heretic. And they made the claim that science was against the Bible. And the answer to that charge uh, is attributed uh, to Galileo. I, I, I can't prove he really said this, but this is attributed to him. Quote, that the Bible shows the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go. 
I give infinite thanks to God who has been pleased to make me the first observer of marvelous things. But I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forgo their youths. As John Paul II said, faith and reason go together, and that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, finally on today's program, Catholics around the world, that includes you and me, regularly recite the Apostles' Creed. Every time you say the Rosary or Chaplet of Divine Mercy, you start with the Apostles' Creed, which states, I believe in the resurrection of the body and in life everlasting, uh, as does, in, in similar words, the Nicene Creed that we recite at Sunday Mass. Stand right up in public and say you believe in the resurrection of the dead. But what is it? What is the resurrection of the body? What do you really know about it? If our bodies are going to rise again, why? Why are our bodies going to rise again? Uh, will they be the same bodies that we had on earth? And if the bodies of the just rise and live forever, what about the bodies of the damned? You see, now if you've ever asked yourself these questions, or even if you haven't, you are in luck because here's what every Catholic needs to know about the resurrection of the body. So, number one, what does the creed mean by resurrection of the body? See, the resurrection of the body means that at the end of the world, the bodies of all human beings will rise from the earth and the sea will give up her dead and their bodies will be reunited with their souls forever. In an instant, in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet, says St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So, I, you know, I think it's comforting to know that we are going to live forever, not as, you know, ghosts or shades or spirits, but as glorified human beings. That is, we're going to be ourselves only perfect, glorified. Talk about what that means in a minute. Uh, but belief in the resurrection of the body was a great consolation to the early Christian martyrs. It was belief in the resurrection of the body that gave them the courage to bear up under persecution, to even go singing to their deaths in the Colosseum. And it has continued to comfort Christians down the centuries, I think especially the poor and the persecuted and the suffering. You know, it, it is because of our belief in the resurrection of the body that the church says we shouldn't mourn excessively for our, our uh, dead loved ones. St. Paul said, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep so that you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. That's First Thessalonians. Uh, we should remember the words of Jesus, who will raise us from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Our Lord often foretold the resurrection of the body. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, he said, Do not be amazed at this, because the hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs <clears throat> pardon me, will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good deeds to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked deeds to the resurrection of condemnation. Heavy words. Jesus also said the blessed sacrament gives immortality to the body. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. <clears throat> what all this means is that Christ redeemed the whole person, not just the soul alone. Therefore, the body of the just person will rise to eternal life. 
You know, the body of man, the body, Adam and Eve, their bodies were originally destined for immortality. And they lost that properly uh, only because of original sin. And St. Paul says, for just as in Adam all die, so too in Christ shall all be brought to life. And the, the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and place us with you in his presence. Those are from First and Second Corinthians. And then to the Philippians, he said, he will change our lowly body to conform with his glorified body by that power that enables him also to bring all things into subjugation to himself. In other words, he will accomplish all of this through his almighty power. And really, I mean, when you think about it, there, there are precedents. The, the resurrection of the body isn't all that extraordinary an idea. My, probably my favorite saint is Bernard of Clairvaux, and something he said back in the Middle Ages, he said, and this is a man who knew vast uh, parts of Scripture by heart and who, you know, wrote these wonderful, amazing, mystical uh, interpretations of Scripture and so forth. But he said, what I know of the divine science, which is theology, and of Holy Scripture, I learned in the woods and fields. I have no other masters than the beeches and the oaks. Now, what's he saying, and, and how do we follow his example? Well, look around at nature, and when we do, you can see that there are various natural uh, types of the resurrection of the body. For example, in the spring, the trees and the flowers wake up to new life after the death of winter. A seed, which is buried like a corpse in the ground, sprouts up as a living plant or a tree or a bush. Uh, the body itself rises up to new energy after sleep, which you know you can see in the scripture, our Lord, St. Paul, uh, used sleep as uh, a type of death. Now, assuming, which we are, that the bodies are going to rise from the dead, the question is, will our risen bodies be the same bodies that we had on earth? And the no-nonsense Catholic answer to that question is yes. And the question is, how do we know? Well, logically speaking, if our risen bodies <clears throat> were not the bodies we had on earth, then they wouldn't be our bodies, and we wouldn't be the same persons. And it could not therefore be said that there was a resurrection or that our bodies had risen. See, that's the point of Jesus retaining his five most precious wounds, so that the apostles would know no, it was really him, and that that glorified body that they beheld was in fact the body that was given up for them. You know, the, the truth in the words of Job are comforting. He said, uh, Job 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the last day I shall rise out of the earth. Right, so that's number one. Number two, during life on earth, your body's constantly changing, adding new growth and discarding waste, right, as, you, uh, as your body grows and ages, bone, muscle skin, hair, but it's always the same body. Still you, right? So And so it will be in the resurrection. Whatever changes take place, it will not affect the sameness of the body that we have on earth. In death, the body only sleeps awaiting the last day. Our Lord himself said that Lazarus and the daughter of Jairus were asleep, right? Even though he knew that they were physically dead. And then number three, our bodies will rise again, even if they've been and reduced to dust, right? What about all the people that lived centuries and centuries ago or whose bodies, uh, you know, were, were thrown into the ocean or were, were burned or whatever? <clears throat> they will be the same bodies, and be, all things are possible to God. God is 
Almighty. He created the entire universe ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of, of nothing. He created all of physical reality. Okay, so gathering together the the dispersed elements of your body is probably not going to present any great difficulty for him. You know, even even if those elements are scattered all throughout the world, nor will it be a problem uh, reuniting them with our souls because God is Almighty. Remember, Christ Himself raised three persons from the dead. Not to mention the saints of the church. I mean, men and women have brought hundreds back to life in the name of Christ uh, over the centuries of salvation history. Now, Scripture tells us the bodies of the just will rise to share forever in the glory of their souls. St. Paul says, that which is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility, and that which is mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And the body of the, the risen just person is going to be beautiful and share the qualities of the risen body of Christ, right? Uh, what the church calls impassibility. So it's not going to be subject to pain or disease or death, hunger, thirst, fatigue, cold. Remember, in the book of Revelation says, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or wailing or pain, for the old order has passed away. Now, the second quality is brightness, that the, the risen body will shine with a radiant glory. Uh, Matthew 13 says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And our Lord gave um, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, a glimpse of that in the transfiguration. Number three, we'll have the quality the church calls agility, which is the, um, the glorified body. You know, will be able to pass with the speed of light to, to any part of the universe and, and to go through doors like Jesus did. And then they'll be subtle or, or spiritual. St. Paul says, you know, we are sown a natural body and it raised a spiritual body. There's a lot more to say on this, but I hope you're getting the grasp. But this is an important teaching of the Catholic Church that our risen and glorified body is going to remain in heaven forever and we need to pay attention to our souls as well as our body here on earth because the risen body of the wicked will be repulsive and a horror to behold while the bodies of the just will be beautiful and glorious so why spend so much time pampering a body that only lasts for a few decades you know i think that's a question that answers itself and that's no nonsense okay back next week also on the 15th we're going to launch the new program, Understanding Divine Mercy, with yours truly and Father Chris Alar. Keep listening to Virgin Most Powerful, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Till then, God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.